Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning, and now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Justin Rutherford. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover to hide behind. Detective Weaver said, I'm sure you know why we're here. I was like, what in the world is going on? Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. My name is Noel. Uh, They call me Ben, and you are you, and this is stuff they don't want you to know. We're doing something a little bit different today. Ben the Bookie Bolin. Uh (laughs) Right, Noel Numbers Brown. Matt is bad at math, Frederick. Matt Mad Money Frederick. Oh, okay. Uh, we want to introduce you to a very special guest in this episode. This is a two-part episode about sports fixing, and as we are not... uh, Despite our uh, new monikers, as we are not ourselves, experts on sports fixing. No, I haven't done much gambling at all. Mm -hmm. I've been to a casino two times. Mm -hmm. I watched a football game on TV once. Oh. It was a date, and I was trying to get in (laughs) good with this gal, and she was a huge Stanford fan. And I tell you, I sat through that whole game like a champ. Mm Mm-hmm. And I almost think maybe I understand how football works. Pretty nice. time in. Well, we have received questions for years from you and listeners just like you who have asked us to cover something like FIFA or something like uh, even corruption in sumo wrestling. Uh, so we were fortunate enough to uh, get an interview with one of the world's preeminent experts on sports fixing, Mr. Brian Tui. Yeah, Brian has written extensively on the subject. He has three books, A Season in the Abyss, The Fix is In, and Larceny Games, all of which dive deep into the world of bookmaking, organized crime, where the money goes in these scenarios, and, of course, the question, 
is what we're seeing legitimate? Are these games having their outcomes manipulated by one of several possible forces? So we'll dive into the first part of the interview where we get, uh, we get a deeper understanding of how this sort of system would work, a look at the history of corruption in sports, and information about what inspired Brian to uh, begin these investigations. Greg, could you tell uh, the audience and us what inspired you to become the world's leading expert on corruption in sports? Well, it really took off when I realized nobody else seemed to want to do this job. I mean, I was really just a fan of professional sports for a long time growing up as a kid, you know, a hockey fan, a baseball fan, football fan, and what have you. But as I got older and perhaps a little wiser, I started noticing what I felt were almost like too many coincidences that were occurring within these games, within these sports, that always seemed to benefit the league. And I came to realize when the leagues have the ability to really control everything that surrounds the games, what prevented them from controlling what happens within the games? And once I kind of asked that question of myself and started doing a little research, it kind of led me down this path to where I am today. It's interesting that you mention the way the league figures into all of this, because obviously there is a whole lot of profit to be made in and around professional sports, whether it's the legal end of it, merchandising, ticket sales, TV deals, things like that. We're talking billions and billions of dollars. But when you really segment it out and you talk about just the money that can be made out of sports betting, how is all of this generated and what kind of figures are we talking here? Well, the professional leagues, the four main leagues, the NFL, Major League Baseball, the NHL, and the NBA make a combined about $25 billion a year in revenue. And as for the sports gambling end of things, the problem is is nobody really knows because 98% of the sports gambling done in the United States today is done illegally. And much of that money is controlled by organized crime. The state of Nevada, which is the only place where you can legally bet on single games in all of these sports, says they account for about 2 to 3% of all the sports gambling done in the nation, and they took in about, what was it, I think about 3 or $4 billion on sports betting, which means if you extrapolate that number, it means that perhaps as much as three to $400 billion is being wagered in the United States today illegally. But nobody really knows. Holy smokes. <laughs> that's a lot of money, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's so much money. So these guys that are running the books on these in these illegal gambling operations, how do they actually make money on this operation? And moreover, I mean, how, what's the structure of this illegal operation? Like from, you know, me being a Joe on the street that wants mm-hmm. to, you know, place a bet on a sports game. How do I go from point A to point B to making or losing a whole bunch of money? Well, that's the scary part in a way is most gamblers are recreational gamblers. You know, they're average Joes or Janes. And they want about 20 bucks or 50 bucks on the game this weekend or what have you. And they don't realize that. Many times when they do bet that 20 or $50 or $100 or whatever they can afford to lose, or sometimes can't afford to lose, <laughs> mm-hmm. whatever they're betting, most often those small amounts are being bet with local bookies. And they might be guys, people they know, people they don't really well know. 
But the problem is, is even those small bets really get funneled into organized crime, even if they're kind of gambling with somebody they know or think they know. Because what happens is, is local bookies often get wagers on local teams. Like I live in Wisconsin, so let's say in this example, most of the bookies that I perhaps would deal with would take a lot of bets on the Green Bay Packers and the NFL because a lot of people bet with their hearts. They bet on the home team. They bet on the games they're going to watch. And in Wisconsin, you watch the Green Bay Packers or you don't watch television really on (laughs) Sunday. So the local bookies get overwhelmed with basically Green Bay Packer money, and that's not good for them because what most bookies want is a 50-50 split on the game. They want 50% bet on the Packers. They want 50% say bet on the Bears. And they collect a 10% on the losers. So you have to bet $11 to win $10, and that's how the bookies make their money. And that's the VIG, right? Is that like the the concept of the VIG, sort of like a premium that you have to Yeah, the vigorous, their take, their rake, however you want to put it, yeah. So, But what happens is these local bookies, in this case, again, get overwhelmed with the money bet on the Packers. So what they want to do is basically what they call lay off that money and bet with other bookies – Perhaps like in Chicago, if the Packers are playing the Bears, because the Bear bookies are going to have too much money on the Bears. And so they kind of swap wagers to kind of alleviate their you know exposure on these games. And so what happens is little bookies bet with slightly bigger bookies, bigger bookies bet with even bigger bookies. And this money almost actually funnels upwards. And sitting at the top of this pyramid is organized crime who have controlled illegal sports gambling for probably 100 years. It's one of those things where even though you're betting with somebody you may know and just somebody you think is local, some guy at the bar, that money gets funneled upwards to people who are running organized crime. And then people say, well, you know, so what? It's, you know, a harmless crime. It's a victimless crime. But the fact is that money that feeds organized crime then goes to prostitution. It goes to loan sharking and it goes to all the other bad things that organized crime still does today. And just to be um, specific for our audience members who may not be as aware of the nuts and bolts of this uh, of the betting process, what is the point spread and why does it matter so? Well, the point spread really only matters in mainly in the NFL and the NBA or college basketball and college football, because too often games are almost lopsided. And this really started way back about 100 years or so, maybe in the 20s or 30s where bookies wanted to take bets on games, on all games that are being played. But in certain instances, you know, people are almost certain that, for example, the Packers are going to beat the Bears. You know, almost no matter what happens, they're almost certain the Packers are going to beat the Bears. And the odds that they would have to set on that game would be so high that nobody would want to bet on the Packers because the return on their money would be so low. And at the same time, the bookies wouldn't want to necessarily give huge odds on the Bears to win because then if that miracle of miracle did happen, they might have to lay out too much money to those people who took the long shot. So over time, they developed what's called the point spread. And the point spread basically kind of evens the playing field, where oftentimes at football, like say if the Packers are playing the Bears, they might say the Packers are minus seven, which means that is you have to subtract seven points from the Packers at the end of the game and or add seven points to the Bears total, and that's what the final score winds up being in the betting circles. Mm-hmm. So if the Packers won 24 to 10, you'd subtract seven, which means the Packers really only scored 17 points. The Bears would get seven points. 
but yet that 24 to 10 difference is 14 points, so it doesn't really come into play for the point spread. And if you bet the Packers, you won. If you bet the Bears in this example, you would lose. Hmm. It's a, it's a little convoluted concept. Yeah, but that's a perfect explanation. Yeah. Absolutely. And I know folks are probably eager for us to get into the, the whole fixing aspect of it, but I do have one more question about the rules and just sort of the, you know, structure for this betting scenario. Um, I know that, uh, in, in your book, Larceny Games, when you're talking about sort of the history of betting and gambling on sports and how at its heart it is a simple prospect of making a 50-50 bet where you're saying, like, I think it's going to be this one and I'm putting all my eggs in that basket and I'm either going to win or I'm going to lose. But at the end of the day, that's not enough to attract enough people to continuously, you know, keep people in business who want to, you know, make money on this betting. So the bookies came up with this idea of odds and they basically created it. And it's a little bit lopsided, I, I think, from the way I'm understanding it, where I'm sure there are stats that go into determining these odds. But at the end of the day, it's sort of like, well, you know, you get more of a return on your money if you maybe bet on the underdog and they win. But I just wanted a little bit of clarification on how you see odds playing into this and whether or not they are based on stats or if it's just kind of a construct and something that these bookies sort of came up with to, you know, sweeten the pot, I guess. Well, it's interesting because really odds and even the point spread are make-believe numbers. You know, they don't necessarily reflect the reality of the game or like a boxing match or horse race. They're really artificial numbers. And the point spread is really almost based, from what I understand from talking to some of these guys who set the point spreads, is based on their perception of the public's perception of the game that's about to be played. So it's funny, the guys who do like the NFL point spreads, they can almost do them just off the top of the heads without looking at computers or statistics or that sort of thing. They just know a lot of betters like certain teams, they like certain matchups, and they just kind of assume that certain games are going to go a certain way. So the guys who are setting the point spreads and creating the odds a lot of times can just wing it because it's based off the perception of the public's perception and not really the bookie's perception of what's going to happen in the game. So if they point, set the point spread, like again, in the Packer bear game at minus seven, it doesn't mean that the bookie really thinks the Packers are going to win like 24 to 17. Ooh. They may think the Packers are going to win 35 to nothing, but they think that's what the public thinks is that the game might be like a 24 to 17 matchup. So that's how they create that point spread. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. 
At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way. Knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And it's interesting because now we start to see these uh, frames, these uh, interlocking frames of perception that uh, play a powerful role, uh, almost as powerful as the actual athlete's in the game. And, and this brings us to a question that I was, I was dying to ask, uh, after we had checked out, uh, Larceny Games, uh, Season in the Abyss, uh, and the fixes in, uh, we wanted to ask you, what in your opinion are the easiest and most difficult sports to fix? Well, you know, the unfortunate thing is I get asked a lot, like, what's the least corrupt sport? Uh huh. And unfortunately, I, I can't name one. because you you really if you do some digging around you will realize 
Almost every professional sport has been negatively influenced by some sort of corruption. I mean, you could go soccer, cricket, tennis, rugby, baseball, football, boxing, hockey, the UFC, horse racing. I mean, the list goes on and on, and you can find corruption in terms of altering the outcomes of certain events in all of those things. You can even find it in Little League Baseball. I've seen it where, you know, the Chicago team from the Little League World Series a couple of years ago was deemed illegal, where I think a New York team a few years ago had a pitcher who was 14 and he should have only been 12 and they lied about his age. I mean, it's unfortunately everywhere. But in terms of your direct question, I think the easiest sports to manipulate from a fixing angle for betting purposes, uh, one is soccer because it's happening all over the globe mm-hmm. and it's been happening for a very long time and they can't or maybe they don't, but they can't seem to stop it. Uh, But in America, I think the two biggest ones would be football and basketball because of that point spread and the idea of the point spread. And I I can explain why is basically because what people can do is they can get athletes to what they call shave points. Whereas again, if you go back to that seven point uh, point spread on that bear Packer, the fictional bear Packer game, means you could approach the players or a player from the Packers and say, hey, look, you can still win the game. You can still beat the Bears. That's fine. Just don't cover that point spread. Instead of winning by more than seven, just win by like three points. And therefore, I can bet the Bears, you can still win your game, but because the Bears are getting seven points and they only lost by three in the betting parlance, they won the game by four. So that's the tricky thing, and you could do it a lot. And I think it occurs a lot, especially at the college level in basketball and football because of these point spreads where a team can still win but yet not cover the point spread, and that makes it really hard to uncover who really was giving 100% out there and who maybe was doing something a little illegal. That's my question. Isn't it really difficult to do? It seems like such a precise thing to influence the outcome of a game just by a certain number of points based on what you do and not have it be completely transparent to anybody watching saying, oh, that guy totally took a dive there. He screwed up that play. It was clearly on purpose. Like, how do these, it seems like there was a whole nother level of skill required to be able to do this convincingly. <laughs> That's funny you said that. Like Joe Namath back in the late 60s was accused of throwing a couple of football games because I think twice in the 1968 season, he threw like five interceptions within a single game. And he kind of got fingered for potentially throwing those games. And Joe Namath, when approached and asked about it, he said, look, because I wouldn't be dumb enough to throw five interceptions in the game I fixed. What I would do is I would throw the ball slightly out of the reach of the wide receiver or I, you know, mishandle a snap or I would you just do something small that would be imperceptible. And that's how it fixed the game. I wouldn't make it obvious like that which I always found funny because that means obviously Joe Namath kind of thought about it and how he would fix a game if need be. (laughs) But apparently he claims he didn't do it because he wouldn't have made it that obvious. And I mean, there's a guy by the name of Lefty Rosenthal. He's an old, old guy. He, um, the movie Casino was actually based on Lefty Rosenthal. He was a real guy in the movie. It's played by Robert De Niro. His name is like Ace Rothstein or something like that. But that's really Lefty Rosenthal. Lefty Rosenthal was known to fix games. And he would actually have college kids, college basketball players, practice missing layups so they looked more realistic when they did it. He was even known to actually, supposedly he gave food poisoning to an entire uh, football team that came into town to play Northwestern University 
and he invited the other team out for dinner and gave them all food poisoning at a restaurant he was familiar with uh, <laughs> to make sure he won his bet. So, I mean, there's 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 various ways to do this. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think it wouldn't be necessarily blatantly obvious, although sometimes it very well could be. And yet, you know, how do you finger somebody for it? Because it could just be somebody's having a bad game or an off day, but prove that he did it on purpose, that's a whole different thing. Yeah, that sounds like it could quickly go into some subjective, uh, murky territory there. Uh, it's very, it's very interesting that you bring up, uh, the concept of college athletes, because as we know, that's a continuing controversy here in the states. Uh, the, these, Kids, really, these students are in a surprisingly vulnerable position. And that led us to, uh, to ask not just, uh, in the realm of college sports, but in the realm of professional sports, uh, how do some athletes become compromised to the point that they're willing to throw a game or to shave some points? And by that, we mean, you know, not the ones who are, uh, who get food poisoning, which is diabolical, um, but, but the, um, you know, the ones who purposefully participate in this kind of, uh, this kind of corruption. Well, did you guys happen to see that movie uh, that just came out called Suicide Squad? Yes, I have not. <laughs> I actually did see it, yes. Okay, well, there's a scene in there where um, Viola Davis, who's the head of the Suicide Squad, is asked, well, how do you get all these bad guys to basically do what you want them to do? And her response was simple. She said, well, everybody has a weakness, and I exploit that weakness. And I think that's exactly what can happen with athletes and with coaches and with referees. I think a lot of sports fans almost make a disconnect and almost forget that these are people. And these are people who are like you and me, people who can have problems, people who can have gambling problems, who can have drug problems, who want to use performance-enhancing drugs, which is another sort of drug problem, mm -hmm. who have women problems, who have men problems, who have all sorts of weaknesses, you know, greed. I mean – it's a very real thing for everybody to have issues with this, with these things. And I think smart people, and we've seen, again, if you look at soccer around the world, they've found those weaknesses within the players, within the coaches, within the referees, and then exploited them. And that's all it takes is it takes a simple failing. I mean, I think if you go with college especially, and I think college is where really people should be looking, especially in the United States, with this sort of corruption – when you're not paying the college athletes, and I really don't necessarily agree that you should pay them, but when you don't pay them and a football player walks out into a stadium, he's surrounded by 100,000 fans. It's being broadcast to three or four million people at home. His coach is the highest paid state employee making three to five million dollars a year. There's people in the stands wearing this kid's jersey, and yet this kid's getting zero dollars. And then somebody approaches him and says, hey, look. I'll give you $10,000, just slightly underperform, shave a few points, and make sure this game goes my way. Oh, why would a kid not accept that money? Hmm. I, I mean, it's a very would. easy offer to make. I mean, and I think it's a very easy offer to accept. Yeah, that same thing occurred to me earlier, like where, you know, there are kids getting in trouble for selling autographs, for example. And it's sort of yeah. like this attitude of, well, where's mine? You know, I want some. Like, everyone else is getting paid. And I, I mean, I'm not well, saying like it's right. Well, like, especially if... If you're a kid who maybe had went into like college basketball with dreams of making the NBA, and the fact of the matter is it's easier to be elected to Congress than it is to make the National Basketball Association mm -hmm. as a player. There's more members of Congress than there are NBA players. Jeez. And yet if you went to college with that hope and dream and then, you know, by your junior year realized 
that dream's not going to happen because I'm just not that good. And yet I still got another year of college eligibility. And again, somebody comes along and says, and it doesn't have to be that much money. I think I could have, you know, fixed a college basketball game with the money I have in my bank account. And being a writer, I don't make a lot of money. <laughs> I think, you know, you could approach these kids and make them generous, seemingly generous offers that they would go for because, again, when everybody else is out there making money, I think they assume that they should be too. So you think they're almost targeted, whereas someone that would be trying to get them to enter into this would see what you're describing, like, oh, they ha- haven't really been performing incredibly well, they're almost done with school, this would be an easy mark for you know getting what I want out of this. I think you could do it either way. I mean, I've seen in some of the older FBI files I have related to you know attempting to fix games where it was just a basic, flat-out direct approach, like, hey, kid, you want to fix a game for me? And then, you know, I've, we've seen in, you know, around, again, especially in soccer, because soccer's so incredibly corrupt, but we've seen where there are really organized crime organizations, I guess for lack of a better term, that literally go out and try to target individuals to get them to fix soccer matches. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there's a similar organization within the United States that may be doing the very same thing within NCAA basketball or football and just looking for weaknesses within certain programs and certain players and targeting them and trying to get them to do what they want to do. Because again, when there's perhaps three to $400 billion being wagered and no one, there's no oversight over it. Nobody's watching over it. There's a lot of room to fudge figures and make some easy money. If no one's going to, you know, come after you for doing it. And you know, Brian, maybe this is the most frightening thing here. Our show examines a lot of allegations a lot of theories and a lot of uh, proof of skullduggery. And to me, uh, personally, the most frightening thing about this situation is that, you, you know, we're using the phrase organized crime and what we're looking at in action seems to be institutionalized crime uh, on, with the by which I mean the level of reach and organization seems far, far beyond what the average fan thinks uh, they're buying into when they make that 25 or $26 bet. Well, I, I think you're right because I don't – again, I think a lot of fans, they put on a fan hat. And when they put on their jersey and they watch TV, they kind of disconnect from the reality of everything the reality of the players, the reality of the gambling that surrounds it, the re- reality of the media control surrounding it all. And I think they just watch the game and assume what happens on the game lives up to every cliche that's out there, you know, be it the player wants to give 110% and takes it to the next level and all those things. I don't think fans are necessarily rational while they're watching these sports. And so they don't recognize all the threats and all the real possibilities that surround these games that may be influencing and are corrupting the outcome of what they think is a true athletic competition. And I think there's so many variables that can influence these games that it's something that really should be looked at closer and not just be assumed that it is all these cliches that are spouted week after week. Brian, I want to take it back just for a second and look at some of the historical examples that will kind of give a framework for our listeners to really see how this stuff started occurring. Um, one of the big ones that we found in the fixes in is the Black Sox. And if you want to talk a little bit about that, the uh, 1919 World Series, and just kind of tell us that story and then maybe give us a few more examples historically of, uh, of fixing. 
Well, here's the funny thing. I mean, you guys probably might remember the answers to these questions, but let me ask you a couple quick questions. Okay. So the Black Sox scandals you just said took place in 1919, and that was the last time, supposedly, according to Major League Baseball, a baseball game has been fixed. Okay. So that's nearly 100 years now at this point. So when was the last time a National Hockey League game was admittedly fixed by the league? Oh, boy. Um, without without going to Google, I don't know that I can sufficiently answer that. Well, the NHL was supposedly like in the 1940s. I think it was like 1946 mm-hmm. was the last time they said the game was fixed. So when was the last time that an NBA game was fixed? Uh, last season. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> that would be my answer, but yeah, I've what got, they claim. Yeah, I've uh, just as a sidebar here for the listeners, uh, Brian, if you're okay with it, I would like to point everybody to uh, your website, thefixesin.net, uh, because in the course of our research, we saw some fantastic uh, modern articles um that we'll get into a little bit later, but uh, as soon as as soon as you had asked about the NHL, I went directly to it, and I thought, oh, he's he's got to have something on this. <laughs> so yeah, uh, what uh, do you do you believe that the uh, that the NBA was fixed uh, last season? Well, we can get into that, but uh, <laughs> my opinion would be definitely yes. I mean, I, I think one of the main things I try to point out to people because this is kind of a different end of the fixing now that we're talking about. I think games are fixed for organized crime and gambling purposes, and I look into that and research that. And at the same time, I think games are fixed by the leagues themselves for entertainment purposes and for television and advertising purposes. Wait. And I mean, I think the same, the same, you know, same processes that can be used for fixing games for gambling reasons can be used to fix games for the league's reasons. And I think the NBA certainly manipulated their own games. And the scary part, the scariest part of all, is that it is not illegal for a league like the NBA to fix its own game. There's no law that prevents that. Right, which is fascinating because in in your book, uh, you you have mentioned, uh, in The Fix is In, I believe it is, uh, you've mentioned a couple of laws that come kind of close, right? Like the quiz show law. Or in the or the Sports Bribery Act of 1964. Exactly. Uh, so, what makes them close, but not, uh, you know, not on the money enough to actually enforce, you know, what they purport to enforce? Well, the Quiz Show Law came first. That came in the 1950s out of the Quiz Show scandals. If anybody ever saw that movie directed by Robert Redford, that's a true story. The television networks basically were fixing their game shows. To and for the same reason I claim the like the NFL or the NBA is fixing their own games, they were fixing their own game shows to make them more entertaining, <laughs> to mm-hmm. drive up ratings, to make people more interested in what was going on. And there was a whistleblower from within one of the game shows who feel who felt he got screwed basically by the network, and he turned him in. And Congress investigated, and out of this investigation came this realization that yeah, they were fixing the game shows to make it more interesting. And so a law was produced, and it was it's basically called the Quiz Show Law. But that just covers intellectual contests or contests of chance, which chance would be like, you know, rolling the dice or, you know, the wheel of fortune is a kind Mm -hmm. of a chance thing. But so you can't fix intellectual contests for television, but that doesn't cover physical contests like a sport. And nobody, I think, would call a sport a 
chance. You know, you wouldn't call a football game a game of chance. You'd call poker maybe a game of chance, but not football. Dice you might call a game of chance, but not basketball. I know people that would be upset about the uh, poker being a game of chance. Yeah, I know. That was probably a bad example. I tried, <laughs> I tried to blow right past it. <laughs> but but basically, that's what the quiz show law covers, is mainly intellectual contests, not physical ones. And then at the same time, in 1964, Congress passed the Sports Bribery Act, which made it illegal for someone to bribe a player, a coach, or a referee to alter the outcome of a game. Now, amazingly, that wasn't a federal crime before 1964 to fix a game. Um, but after 1964, it was illegal, but that's a bribe. Now, if the NBA tells its referees, the employer tells its employees how to do their job, and that may alter the outcome of a game, well, that's not anybody being bribed. That's just someone telling you how to do your job, and you go out in the court and do your job, and maybe that alters the outcome of a game, and maybe it doesn't, but the fact of the matter is that doesn't make it illegal. So the closest thing is fraud that this may cover, but even fraud doesn't cover it because when uh, New York Jets fans sued the New England Patriots over the Spygate scandal as part of like a class action lawsuit. They ultimately lost, and the court ruled that, look, when you buy a ticket to a game, if you buy a ticket to an NFL game, that team just basically has to provide a football game to you. It doesn't have to be played under any certain rules. Certain athletes don't have to perform or perform up to a certain level. It doesn't mean a team can't cheat. You paid to see a football game. They provided a football game. End of story. So there's really no law that covers this in terms of a league fixing its own game and making it illegal. It's not a crime because it is simply entertainment, and the leagues will tell you that they're entertainment. Right. Legal, legally, they are, which, uh, which when we learned about this, this may come as a blow to diehard sports fans across the leagues. Um, when we learned about this, this kind of ruling uh, would be, essentially render uh, sports leagues more on the level of wrestling than it would for uh, what they're perceived as. Is that correct? Oh, very much so. And the funny thing is, is ESPN, you know, the worldwide leader in sports, they now cover professional wrestling regularly. In fact, they have a special section on their webpage for professional wrestling. So, I mean, that line is getting more and more blurred every day. I'm sorry, are you guys implying that professional wrestling isn't real? No. Oh, we've done it. No, no, it's real, dude. Guys, <laughs> you're killing me here, crushing my dreams. We thought it was best that you learned this way with an expert. That's yeah, <laughs> I appreciate it. This is this is all an intervention, <laughs> right, for me. Um, well, what are the consequences of people getting caught? Whether it's a player or an official, uh, maybe there's betting involved, or someone has you know used a position of influence to for a personal gain. Well, the problem is nobody's gotten caught. As I was bringing up earlier, you know, the 1919 White Sox last time it supposedly happened in baseball, 1946 for the NHL, like early 1950s, I think it was 54 for the NBA. And the NFL claims it's never happened once in its entire existence that someone tried to or someone did fix the outcome of a football game. So nobody's gotten caught for this crime in the United States except for college athletes. Okay, in certain colleges like Boston College. Toledo, University of San Diego, Northwestern. There's been a few, but not a lot. Now, the scary part is, to me, is, again, you look outside the United States, there's soccer match fixing at every level. We know that World Cup soccer matches, which is the most watched, most popular sporting event in the world, we know soccer matches have been fixed in the World Cup. We know it. 
We know the Indian Cricket League, which is their national sport, is one of the most corrupt leagues in the world. We know rugby in um, what is it in Australia has been fixed. We know baseball in uh, China has been fixed. I mean, we know sumo wrestling's corrupt. We know there's corruption everywhere else around the world, but supposedly here in the United States, it just doesn't happen. And I don't believe that for one single. You know, uh, we're tempted to agree with you there because when we talk about athletes being caught cheating or when we talk about the game being somehow compromised, the only real coverage of it in the contemporary world is, uh, you know, an individual athlete in most cases, uh, doping or taking performance enhancing drugs. Uh, so it seems like what's happening here is a vast revenue stream for organized crime, uh, that is going from the street level to the top and then later global. And as, as you said, this is occurring today. Is it occurring more or less, or has it always been the same and just unacknowledged? Well, I think it's, I think it hasn't really been acknowledged. I think the more it's been brought to light, especially like in soccer and with the corruption that was in FIFA and even the International Olympic Committee to a certain extent, I think it's come more to light so more people are looking at it. And at the same time, the more people that seem to look at it, the more they realize that they're having a very hard time preventing it because it's such an easy crime to do, and yet it's a very hard crime to prove to get someone taken away and thrown in jail for it, although it has happened. I mean, like the Italian soccer league, Serie A, is incredibly corrupt. It's been corrupted from the players all the way up to the owners, and guys have been arrested and thrown in jail for fixing matches and all sorts of bad behavior there. Yet, you know, I think it was Fox Sports paid them a few million dollars so they could broadcast it here in the United States, and does Fox Sports ever talk about that corruption? Of course not. <laughs> it doesn't happen. But I mean, the, the, the problem with it and the why no one I think has ever been really caught for it at the professional level here in the United States is how do you prove it? There is no concrete evidence. And from the 400 some odd files I obtained through the Freedom of Information Act from the FBI related to this, the FBI can't prove these things have gone on, yet they had great evidence. I mean, they would talk to what they called top echelon informants, which are really like high up mafia informants who work with bookies, they would say, this bookie is working with this player, and they're going to fix this game. And sure enough, the game would end in exactly the way the informant said it was going to end, but that didn't prove that the game was fixed. You know, you can't go to court off of that. Mm -hmm. So where's your concrete evidence? Unless somebody admits to committing a federal crime, which is going to be hard to do if you don't have evidence of it, or you didn't get it on a wiretap or some sort of recording of it, you know, nothing's written down. It's not written on league letterhead. It's not written, you know, it's there's no evidence for this sort of thing. So the FBI got very frustrated in investigating these things because of that lack of evidence. And that's why the leagues can say this has never happened because no one's ever been caught and convicted of it happening. But that doesn't necessarily make it true. It just makes it true to their, you know, proof of evidence there. Well, I think as we're wrapping up some of the more historical background of sports fixing and bookmaking, I'm kind of interested in, you know, at its most basic level, how did the mob originally start getting into this and start 
kind of looking for easy targets as far as which sports to fix. Like I, I picture boxing as being one because you can just, you know, offer somebody a lot of money or threaten somebody's family, things like that. But can you kind of just lay it out a little bit about like how this started, how it kind of ballooned into what we see now in more modern times? Well, it's hard to say really because like I say, I think it, a lot of it was easy money. I mean, bookmaking in many ways is pretty much easy money because most of the time the public is wrong when they make a bet. You know, I mean, they really are. I mean, a lot of people almost make more money betting against the way the general public is betting on a game because more often than not, the general public is wrong. So, I mean, most it's very hard to find a bookie who went out of business because his clients were too good and winning too often. So, I mean, to get into, you know, bookmaking and like I say, organized crime has been in it for 100 years or more. It's because more often than not, the people who are betting lose over a period of time. So uh, that's why I think it's easy for them to go into that business and make money. In terms of fixing, I, I mean, it's it's kind of nice to have a sure thing. And I think if you know that athletes are betting with you, you can compromise them. If you know athletes have a drug problem and you're the one supplying the drugs, you can compromise them. I mean, there's just ways to compromise athletes. And that's the way the mob, I think, has made its money for throughout its history is finding the weaknesses within people and exploiting them. And it's funny you bring up boxing because – most people don't realize that, like for boxing, between the late 40s and early 60s, really one mobster controlled pretty much all of boxing. And I mean literally controlled it. He determined many times who would fight who, where they would fight, and oftentimes who would win and who would lose, and he would always get a cut of that money. But I mean boxing is actually what made television, believe it or not. Who is I mean, that television guy? became into – the thing was Frankie Carbo. And Frankie Carbo basically controlled boxing. He worked with two guys who helped found the NHL, Arthur Wirtz, whose family still owns the Blackhawks today, and James Norris, who the Norris Trophy is named after his father, who owned the Detroit Red Wings. He worked with those two guys to put boxing events in their arenas because they controlled Madison Square Garden, Chicago Stadium, Olympia Stadium in Detroit, and St. Louis Arena. And he, the Carbo worked with those two guys put on boxing events in those arenas and then they sold it to CBS and NBC as Wednesday and Friday night fights. Wow. And those events really helped make television a must see thing. And that's, I mean, it's pretty amazing that really those three guys really helped influence television and made it something that everybody had to see because boxing was such popular in those fifties and early sixties. And yet it was controlled by organized crime the entire time. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you, Mafia, for cable television. (laughs) Yes, thank you for cable, mobsters. Um... I, I mean, we've, we've lived with cable. We grew up with cable. I'm a cord cutter. I am now, mm-hmm. but what, from the night, from the 80s up until a couple years ago, I had that cable like directly attached to my heart. Intravenously pumping content into your bloodstream. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And right now, ladies and gentlemen, you are with us in a 
a moment outside of time because we've taken a break. We can tell you that behind the scenes, Noel, Matt, and I realized uh, that we were not going to be able to fit this entire interview into a single episode. So we knew we would have to split it. And this is us traveling into our past, which I guess is your present now. Uh, podcasting plays with time that way. We are so high on the spice right now. Yeah, we're so high on the spice right now uh, that we are going to take some time. We're going to head out of here and we'll be back next week with the second half of the interview. But while while we're still here, while it's still uh, the three amigos in the studio, I have to I have to ask you guys. What are you thinking so far about this, about this weird connection with the mafia and about, uh, Brian's, Brian's statement that pretty much all sports are rigged? So far, I'm pretty convinced, I would have to say. Uh, but you know, maybe it's just because Brian's convincing. I don't know. It seems like after reading the material, then hearing him talk about it yeah. so openly and frankly, I mean, he's very matter of fact about it and just it kind of just speaks about it like a foregone conclusion and not to say that that means it's true. But in my mind, with all of the cases of sports fixing that we've we do know about in other parts of the world, it just seems kind of naive to think that, you know, with all that there is to gain from this, whether it's TV deals, whether it's, you know, big money bets and organized crime, that this is not, in fact, happening on some level in professional sports. I just, I, I don't, I can't buy that they're so squeaky clean. Also given these doping scandals that we always see uncovered and have been, you know, for a long time now, how, how can we accept that that is a thing that happens, that people are willing to go to those lengths, but not the ones that Brian describes. So I'm kind of with you on that, Matt. Yeah, he did. He did an excellent job. I think building a case, uh, so far, you know, at least providing motive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so listeners, uh, hope you enjoy this episode as much as we're enjoying making it. That's a tall order, as you said on Facebook Live, uh, from earlier, but the journey is not over yet. Uh, if you're looking for something else to check out while you're waiting for the conclusion to, uh, this interview, which will come out next week, uh, then why not head over to stuff they don't want you to know.com where you can check out every audio podcast we have ever done along with so many of our videos. And if you want to read more from Brian, you can check out his site at thefixisin.net, where you can see info on how to get a hold of his books, The Fix Is In, Larceny Games, A Season in the Abyss, not to be confused with the Slayer album, Seasons in the Abyss. Um, and he's got a really, uh, it's, it's a very telling little tagline on his page here. Would you leave a multi-billion dollar business up to chance? Oh, good question. And of course, if you have a suggestion for an upcoming episode or you want to see some of the stuff we do that doesn't make it to the podcast, like you may have heard me mention Facebook Live, well, you can visit us on Facebook and Twitter where we are Conspiracy Stuff. You can find us on Instagram where Conspiracy Stuff Show. And uh, if you're feeling particularly gregarious, generous, charitable, if you feel like you need to give back, if today is your day to do a good deed, then why not drop us a review on iTunes? And many of you have. Since the last time I checked, there have been some nice reviews, some not-so-nice ones, too. But you know what? We take the good with the bad, folks, and we really appreciate your support. A not-so-nice one? Yeah. Boo. Yeah. But it, hey, it's good. We want it all. 
Hey, it's we a learning want, we want process. Objectivity. Um, but yeah, you can do that on iTunes. You can do that on Stitcher. There are any place that you can get the show and you have the ability to review us. Please do. It helps the algorithm out, helps people find out about the show and keeps us from getting fired. The very last thing I know some people have kind of tuned out when we're at the end and we're in like, this is like the credits rolling, right? And we're saying all this, this other stuff. Uh, Two-thirds of us are going to be in New York next week. New York City, just like in the Salsa commercials. That's a deep cut. Do you think anyone remembers that? One I person do. might. New York City? Yeah. Uh, Pace Picante. Yeah, wow. They got, they got you, huh? <laughs> they got me, too, I guess. But we're going to be up there. Nolan and I are going to be up in New York. Matt's going to be holding down the fort in Atlanta. If you want to hang out with us, drop us a line. We'll be... Uh, to and fro, hither and yon, all across the fair metropolis. But yeah, if, I mean, seriously, if enough of you guys uh, are interested, we'll set up a time where we can all meet up and hang for a bit. So in lieu of all of this other stuff, if you want to get in touch with us without going on social media or doing any of those things. Or going to New York. Or going to New York. But hey, why not? Book a flight right now. Um, you can write us an email. We are conspiracy at howstuffworks.com. Girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Last season, millions tuned into the Betrayal podcast to hear a shocking story of deception. I'm Andrea Gunning, and now we're sharing an all-new story of betrayal. Justin Rutherford. Doctor, father, family man. It was the perfect cover to hide behind. Detective Weaver said, I'm sure you know why we're here. I was like, what in the world is going on? Listen to Betrayal starting on May 23rd on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.